CPI is a really crappy statistic for the most part. Housing has gone up faster than a CPI. Food has gone up faster than CPI. Healthcare has gone up faster than CPI. Tuition's gone up faster than CPI. The cover price of the New Yorker magazine has gone up faster than CPI. Hello there from Costa Rica. How are you all doing? It's 2 a.m. here and I am jet lagged as fuck. I am also not going to be as loud as normal because I don't want to wake up my neighbors in this hotel. I am off on my magical mystery tour so I can get to Miami for Bitcoin 2021. Honestly, the things I go through to buy you savages a whiskey and talk about Bitcoin. But I'm on my way. I will be in Miami. We will drink whiskey. We will talk Bitcoin. Very exciting. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and I'm back for my monthly update with the amazing Lynn Alden. This time, we're talking inflation. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors, and today we're going to be kicking off with sportsbet.io, and I've confirmed with the team we will announce the competition that we are running to win a Lambo in Miami at Bitcoin 2021. I will let you know how you can win that prize, but there is going to be a nice little extra Bitcoin edge to that prize. You're going to love it. Anyway, sportsbet.io is the very best place for online gaming, and they accept Bitcoin because they're badasses. And with sportsbet.io, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. They cover football, so you can bet on Tottenham losing and laugh in their faces. But they also have tennis, American sports, motorsports. They even have esports. They have every sport you could possibly think of. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I have been using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. And recently somebody said to me, well, how are you using Exodus Wallet? What are you using it for? And as you know, Lloyd's Bank closed down my bank account. But also, look, I'm increasingly running my business on Bitcoin. I get paid in Bitcoin and I pay people in Bitcoin. And every month, my accountant is always bollocking me. She's always like, Pete, I have no idea who you're sending this Bitcoin to, who you're getting it from, what it's for. I can't do your goddamn accounts without this information. So when Exodus reached out to me, I had a look at the wallet and in their advanced features, I can keep records of this. So every month I stop my accountant nagging me, which honestly is a massive relief. Now they have crushed the UX, but if you want to check it out yourself, please do head over to exodus.com or just search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, we need to talk about Casa and we need to talk about your Bitcoin security now. I know some of you are sat on a decent stack of Bitcoin. You've been crushing it this year, but if you aren't custodying it yourself or you've got it all on a single wallet, it is time for you to consider Casa. And I know what you're thinking. Do I need this, Pete? Isn't this going to be a pain to set up? Maybe some of you are thinking, what the hell is a multi-sig wallet? I know, I know, I know. I had all the same questions. But honestly, it could not be easier to set up. And you get so much peace of mind from having a Casa multi-sig solution. Now, a Casa multi-sig wallet allows you to custody your Bitcoin, but only move any Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you distribute into different locations, protecting you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you've got any questions about Casa, you can DM me, you can drop me an email, I do reply to everyone. So there is never a better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out about all their products at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Okay, so on to the show today, and I have one of the interviews I look forward to most every month, my hour I get with Lynn Alden, the amazing Lynn Alden. 
Now, this was actually meant to go out in April, but I couldn't fit it in last week. We had a crazy amount of shows booked in, but the good news, it means you're going to get Lynn twice this month. So in this one, Lynn and I get into inflation, and with the ridiculous amounts of money printing that we've seen over the last 12 months, Bitcoin has been used as a hedge against this inflation. And when I spoke to Michael Saylor back in October, he said this was a massive driver behind MicroStrategy's Bitcoin purchase. Now, I know the link between money printing and inflation is not black and white, and this is something I was really keen to get into with Lynn. How is inflation measured and what is the market telling us right now? I also wanted to know what real inflation is, like where it really is showing up. I think perhaps sometimes people can use stats to highlight that people should be buying Bitcoin, but perhaps there is some nuance behind some of the inflation numbers. I mean, there is no, there is no doubt that we have seen inflation, but I wanted Lynn to give me her lens on it all. As ever, it's a monster of a show. You know what Lynn's like. She's incredible. And I know you're going to love it. But if you do have any questions, you want to reach out to me, you know you can. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. The rules are always the same. Don't send me any weird shit and I will reply to everyone. Okay, enjoy the show and I'll speak to you later. Lynn, hi. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm very good. I've just had my first vaccine dose. Oh, nice. So if I collapse during the interview, Bill Gates has won. (laughs) (laughs) Right, my favorite hour every month. Looking forward to this. Got lots I want to talk to you about. Uh, I do want to do a good chunk on inflation. I'm sure that's high on your radar. Yeah. Not much has happened, well, not much has happened with the Bitcoin price since we last spoke. It's gone up and down, but we're fairly flat from where we were. But just before we start, what have you been generally looking at? What are you looking at right now? What's on your mind? What have you been thinking about over the last month? A couple of things. One is inflation base effects, right? So we're entering, and I don't know if we talked about this last month, but you know, for if, in case we haven't, or in, you know, new people listening in, um, you know, inflation is often compared year over year. Um, and so uh, last year, uh, during April, May, and June, um, inflation by most metrics dipped very low because you you had the initial shutdowns, things like that. Uh, and so when you're doing a year over year comparison. You can actually get some pretty high numbers because you're comparing to like a bottom of a dip. Whereas if you were comparing to say, you know, February to February, it'd be less extreme because you're comparing to what was already a reasonably strong month, you know, it's kind of before the pandemic. Uh, And so we're going to get some pretty high headline CPI numbers. And there's all sorts of issues with CPI. You know, I, 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 you know, I I have charts coming out showing how like, you know, most prices that we care about have gone up faster than CPI. Uh, But even the official CPI numbers are likely to be, you know, over three uh, percent during this uh, this this base effect period, and you could you could overshoot to four percent or, or you know potentially higher. So I'm kind of watching that to see how the bond market responds to that. The you know the topic is going to be the idea that it's transitory, that you know these are this is an inflation spike, and because of those base effects, that's partially true. Uh, but then you know if you're a bondholder, you have to you know how sure are you that that they're that they're transitory or how how big is the spike going to get? How persistent is it going to be? What's going to happen with ongoing fiscal stimulus? And so this, this could be kind of an interesting period for, you know, bond market, gold market, Bitcoin market, uh, just kind of see how this plays out. The other thing I'm watching is that, you know, at, uh, you know, as the base affects, you know, the other side of that, as we look into quarter three, uh, that's where, you know, some of the euphoria of, of really good year-over-year numbers, right? So So it's not just inflation that has those base effects. It's also you know, GDP growth and construction spending and retail spending and corporate earnings, they all had a really bad quarter two of last year. That was their worst point. 
And so their quarter two here is going to be incredible. Uh, but then once you get into like quarter three, you know, we've we pumped a lot of money into the economy. Some economies not, are not really kind of pumping a lot more. Some of them are even kind of just starting to pull back and normalize. And so some of the euphoria that's propped up, you know, assets ranging from from Tesla to Dogecoin to, you know, all, basically across the board, it's good assets, bad assets, you know, a lot of that's what's propped it up could start tapering and, and you know, uh, pose a challenge. And the, the risk there is that even some good assets can can dip and, and, and pull back if you get a broad market that kind of, you know, isn't being held up by tons of stimulus anymore. Right. Okay. Let's talk about some of these inflation numbers because there was a tweet that got widely shared, I think it was last week, with a a list of different commodities and uh, various items and and, and it was showing the year-on-year inflation rate. The, The headline standout number was lumber and I keep seeing various tweets relating to that. Somebody saying a you know, a two by four is now seven dollars. This is ridiculous. Um, but at the same time, the energy uh, prices were, were also uh, had massively uh, risen. But I saw also Joe Wasenthal replied to somebody saying, "Well, what happened a year ago?" Um, and we know that energy prices dropped uh, quite significantly related to the COVID lockdown. So, what are the standout? Uh, what are the standout? signals for inflation that you're actually seeing? And is there anything that's been slightly misleading? Uh, And I say that because I think sometimes Bitcoiners can cheerlead uh, some of these figures as an indicator that people should be invested in Bitcoin, but but perhaps they're misleading. Yeah, and I agree that some of them are misleading. And it's one of those things where because it's a sensitive topic, inflation, there's kind of misleading aspects on both sides. Uh, And that's it. So, you know, the misleading part about some of those year-over-year numbers uh, that 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 Joe was correct about is that you're comparing that one year where where commodities fell into a hole, right? Because China just like stopped buying energy, stopped buying copper. They're the biggest buyers. Uh, they were totally shut down, uh, and then you kind of exploded out of that that big that big kind of you know down part. And so the year-over-year numbers are ridiculous. But for example, if you back up and you look at you know commodities over the past ten to fifteen years. Most of them actually are not at all-time highs. So lumber is, you know, they, that's been the that's been like the it looks like a Bitcoin chart. And then you have um, uh, gold touched new all-time highs in 2020. Uh, it's been in a correction, but it it still touched it. Uh, beef is at all all-time highs. Uh, but for example, the the overall, if you if you take an aggregate of most commodities, it's actually been in like a 10 to 15 year bear market. Uh, and just because we had a period of, you know, in the, in the 2000s, you had a period of, you know. Uh, China had a fast growth rate. There was a lot of commodity demand. Uh, we, we brought a lot of new commodity supplies online. Uh, and then when China slowed down and the whole world kind of a, adapted to this, you know, we, we've been in this period of commodity oversupply. And so I think a lot of those year-over-year numbers, you know, basically a lot of commodities are just getting back up to where they were before. Like oil is just back up to where it was before the pandemic. Uh, There's some like copper that are that are elevated, but still not at all-time highs. And then there are some that are at all-time highs like lumber. But then the funny thing is, if you look at timber, right, which is you know before it becomes lumber, it's timber. That's actually you know not that expensive at all. It's really about the bottlenecks of turning timber into lumber, right? So the the you know the the the, the basically the refining that has to go into cutting that up and and you know getting it treated. Uh, and so a lot of that is about supply chain issues. Same thing we're having in the semiconductor industry, where you know there's just not a lot, there's not enough foundries to make the semiconductors, and so. On one hand, kind of focusing on those year-over-year numbers can be misleading, and can you know for 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 readers that 
know what those base effects are, that could even turn them off. Of you know, they they think okay, this it this you know, people in this industry don't know what they're talking about. Um, on the other hand, you know, people that are saying there's no inflation, you know, over especially over these several years, are also misleading because you know CPI is a really crappy statistic for the most part. And I actually have a chart coming out later today that just shows you know housing has gone up faster than a CPI, food has gone up faster than CPI, healthcare has gone up faster than CPI, tuition's gone up faster than CPI. The cover price of the New Yorker magazine has gone up faster than CPI, a lot faster. And so, you know, basically we've had a couple deflationary areas like consumer electronics or things that you can outsource to China. Those have been, you know, globalization, technology. Uh, they've really pushed down the cost or things. Same thing, you know, your cell phone can now do what, you know, 10 of your electronics could do, you know, a decade ago. So that's been that's been the deflationary area. But then pretty much anything you can't outsource or that isn't automated has gone up faster than CPI. And for most household budgets, that's still where they spend most of their money. You know, housing, education for their kids or themselves, uh, healthcare costs, you know, either through themselves or through their employer, which eats into their compensation total. Uh, those are the areas where we spend most of our money. And so it's one of those things where we actually have had pretty significant inflation over the past, you know, 10, 20 years. Um, but that year over year number is still somewhat misleading for how fast it's been. Uh, some of the things I'm looking at are, the producer price index, uh, which is which is kind of a precursor to inflation, uh, that's that's been spiking. Uh, you know, just the overall kind of uh, you can look at the bottlenecks in the industry, like we talked about the semiconductors, uh, we talked about lumber. Uh, you know, we've seen that in shipping over the past few months, uh, where just you know there's only so many containers and container ships, and so we have had various supply chain issues, and so that that's how I'm monitoring it. Where it's often the case that the truth is in the middle. And that's what I'm finding here with inflation as well, that, that we are getting an inflationary impulse from this fiscal spending, but it's not like inflation is absolutely massive in that 12-month period. Yeah, I, I did, I did, I don't even know if I retweeted it myself, but I did take a step back and reconsider it and thought, is this misleading? Are, are we getting, look, there is a, a fear and a risk of inflation, but are we cheerleading this as Bitcoiners as a, as a way to support our thesis on Bitcoin? I worry that we do that sometimes. And I was trying to theorize with, you know, what is going on here with lumber? Is it because house prices are going up? That And I know out in the US, for example, a lot more properties are built built using wood? Is there like an increased demand for house building? Or is it anything else? I know, for example, here, because of the lockdowns, a lot of people have been doing work on their houses. So I spoke to a friend who's a plumber. He said they've never been so busy. There's so much demand. And because of that, there's demand for electricians, there's a demand for plasterers, there's a demand for carpenters. So is this just some pent-up demand? You know, the economy is finding a place for people's money to go because they, they can't have holidays. You know, they're not going out to restaurants and to dinner. I kind of wondered, is, is it part of that? Also, is it part pent-up demand with the economy? The economy starting to pick up again as people come out of lockdown. Is is it a temporary inflationary event based on supply and demand, less so than an increase in the money supply? Yeah. So lumber does have some of those temporary issues, and so as you pointed out, basically, uh, you know, in many in many countries, especially the United States, there's been a movement from cities to suburbs, uh, and this you know this big kind of uh, grab for for single family homes uh, that, that, you know, in, in the U.S. at least and, and some other countries are made up a lot of wood. Uh, and then there has been a lot of remodeling and there's a bottleneck in terms of how many sawmills out there are able to turn timber into lumber. Uh, and now there's also a money printing component because, for example, if, if you didn't have the fiscal stimulus, if you didn't have the, the stimulus checks, the unemployment benefits, then fewer of these people would have been able to afford it. There would have been more solvency events 
Uh, and so the prices would not have been able to go up as much as they did. Same thing, you know, I, I've often pointed out that over this the course of this pandemic, uh, personal incomes are up, even though unemployment is down. And that's because uh, we did various aid programs to keep people floating. And, you know, so that allowed them to keep spending and, and do things like that. And so there is an element where the fiscal stimulus was a part of these prices going up. But for these these individual things that are going up way too much, like, uh, you know, uh, semiconductor shortages or lumber uh, prices, that's that's also due to uh, specific supply chain issues that given enough time should be rectified. So, for example, I wouldn't I wouldn't buy a lot of lumber here and hold it for five years because, you know, there's a, you know, however long it lasts anyway. But basically, there's this this has capacity to eventually address itself, whereas there are some other areas like, say, copper, where you can't just bring a lot of new copper to market. Uh, and so, you know, mines take a decade to bring online. They've actually, you know, been harding, it's been challenging to find big deposits. Uh, and so there are areas where there are commodity bottlenecks. And actually, I find that, you know, when it comes to economists predicting inflation, you know, I think the big blind spot that a lot of them have is the the, the like the long-term, say, 15-year commodity cycle, where you have these periods of there's tons of commodity demand, so a ton of people go out and find new commodities, then they oversupply the market, then we enter a long bear market, uh, mm-hmm. and then no one does any no one does any capex, or at least capex goes way down because it's unprofitable to to you know to to do all the exploration and bring these mines up, and then eventually you get really tight commodity markets, and then you know price starts going up, and then you're like, oh no, and then we're behind on our capex, and so you you have to spend years kind of keeping up with that, and so that that long term commodity cycle has a big impact on inflation, especially when you also consider different policies that are increasing the broad money supply, which is what we have seen over the past year, where the broad money supply has gone up a lot, and that certainly has been a, a big factor for prices. So it's a mixed and complicated and more nuanced picture than people may be uh, maybe believing that that's happening there that's that's fair so can can you go back to what was it you were referring to a moment ago you they said there's the, something you were looking at that's the precursor to inflation uh the producer price index what what is that telling you it basically yeah it's basically kind of like you know what does it cost producers to make things right. uh and also you can look at different uh you know, there are surveys that are done every month and also you can find out that companies are you know talking about inflation in their supply chains uh, and so basically before inflation reaches consumer prices, it's often, you know, shows up earlier in the supply chain where it costs, it, you know, producers are selling their products to other producers more, right? So a company uh-huh. buys from another company, uh, those prices start going up. And if the company can't pass those prices on the consumers, then they get a margin squeeze. Uh, and so basically there, there's, there's kind of like precursors you can watch about inflation. And some of those, they tend to be bigger swings than, than the final number. Uh, and so during a during a recession, they can fall a lot more than than inflation can, and then during booms, they can go up a lot more. But they generally tell you that the direction of what's what's happening with inflation, you know, a couple months in advance. Uh, and so that that's kind of the stuff to watch. And again, part of that is related to supply chain issues that are that are kind of localized due to you know we we made an unusual a number of changes over the past year, like like our housing choices suddenly changed you know more rapidly than normal things mm-hmm. like that. But then it's also due to the increase in the broad money supply, uh, and so that those are a couple of things worth watching as it relates to you know estimating inflation a couple months out. And what's the producer index showing you? Last I checked, it was it was something like seven percent year over year, uh, which which you know that that points to uh, CPI likely touching over three percent. 
potentially touching over 4%, uh, you know, as we get these, these spring reports. And so April inflation will be reported in May, May inflation will be reported in June. Uh, and so we'll see what the headline numbers are. And, and some of the, of course, like, you know, the, the bond market and other big markets kind of care about the official CPI character uh, numbers, even though those generally understate uh, based on, you know, the, the typical basket of a household expense. It's the CPI a fair measure of inflation? Because one of the things I struggle with inflation is I, I think it's one of those things that's quite relative. It it, it may be a good measure of uh, the general cost of living, uh, the changes in the cost of living month on month for people. But for example, someone like my uh, my children doesn't really affect them. But what does affect them is if house prices accelerate to such a rate where where maybe they're in their 20s and they will want to buy a house, it's really pushed it out of reach for them. So is the CPI a fair rate of calculating inflation? Should we have multiple calculations? Is it, I think is it should just be multiple. Health, yeah, I was going to say, is it just a good one for the government? Yeah, it's good for the government. Mm. I think there should be multiple kind of measures of inflation. And in some sense, there are. I mean, that's why there's things like producer price indexes are useful. Uh, you can also just look at, you know, what is the raw, you know, commodity index doing? So what are, what are commodity prices doing? That's one of the big factors of inflation. Uh, generally, you don't have strong inflationary periods without commodity prices also uh, going up a lot. Uh, but like I said, over the past decade, the problem is that, you know, the th- the big areas of spending that most people spend their money on have gone up faster than wages uh, and have gone up faster than the official CPI. And so that includes housing, that includes food, that includes, uh, you know, health care, tuition, child care, uh, things that you can't outsource or that are not deflated away by by technology and smartphones and things like that. And so, whereas, you know, on the other hand, your TV got cheaper, your computer got cheaper, but those are generally pretty small percentages of a household budget. And so some of those other, uh, you know, uh, things are really important. Another factor that's weird about housing is that, you know, obviously CPI does not really take into account most asset prices. So it doesn't take into account you know, asset price inflation in the mm-hmm. stock market or, or private businesses. Um, it only partially factors in real estate, but it does it in a weird way. And so you actually have a thing where, you know, houses have gone up faster than inflation in most markets. Uh, so so they've outpaced inflation. Uh, but then, for example, because we've been in this kind of multi-decade trend of lower, lower interest rates, including mortgage rates, the actual monthly payment to afford a house hasn't really gone up that much, uh, even though the cost of the house has. And so that can that can push down kind of the quirky, wonky, the, the cost of owning a shelter. Uh, however, it's unfortunate that that doesn't change the fact that people still have to take on more debt relative to their income in order to afford that house. And so basically, it just means that, you know, of, of the monthly kind of, you know, uh, plan that they're doing, more of that at least goes to the house than goes to interest uh, to the bank. But it's basically those, those policies are still propping up uh, housing prices. And so an ideal case would be, you know, to have, have for, for especially for new people entering the market, for housing prices to be, you know, cheaper than they are, especially on a, a ratio of like, you know, housing price to, to median annual wages. Is there any risk whereby we come out the long-term debt cycle, and I don't know what point that would be, but interest rates will then start to go up and people might be trapped with payments they can't afford on houses they've taken on with these low interest rates? Is, is, that, a, is that a serious risk? Is that a serious concern for central banks when setting interest rates? Well, that was a huge. That was a big factor in what caused the subprime mortgage crisis, uh, you know, back in 2007, which was that these people 
they bought it, you know, they were, there's predatory marketing, you know, really dumb, like, uh, you know, uh, things by banks. And then, and then people bought into houses they couldn't afford. Uh, and so a lot of them, what the way they did it was they had a really, really low variable rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and so after like five years that had like a contracted thing where it could bump up to a market rate and suddenly they couldn't afford that house anymore, mm-hmm. uh, which they really couldn't afford it from the beginning, but now they literally couldn't afford the payments. Uh, and so that, that triggered this cascade of defaults that happened. So that's not a problem for people that have say 30 year fixed rate mortgages or even 15 year fixed rate mortgages. I know different countries all have different kind of mm-hmm. practices for what is normal for, for kind of a housing financing scheme. Uh, and so it, it is a factor for variable rate mortgages. Um, and so generally after long-term debt cycle, usually interest rates normalize, uh, but there's always a big question of, of what is, you know, what is, what is a normal interest rate? And it obviously it changes based on, on what society is doing, what demographics are like, whether there's a period of kind of a, you know, technology boom happening, like, you know, there's peri- like, technology doesn't really happen linearly, right? We have, we have mm-hmm. these big discoveries, like, you know, the, the, using oil or the internal combustion engine or electricity or the internet and smartphones, right? So you have these kind of bursts of, of, of growth uh, and that can kind of, you know, temporarily suppress, uh, you know, costs for, for, you know, a number of years. Uh, but over time, you know, interest rates, you know, should eventually normalize, but I, don't, I wouldn't expect that anytime very soon. Uh, and it's one of those things where, you know, if you had a theoretical environment, like you say, say the free banking era in the United States, where you didn't have like a centralized yield setter, then you have different institutions setting different rates, which is actually kind of what we see in, in the in the you know the crypto lending markets, where you have different entities setting rates. Some of them are more conservative than others, and so you, you basically are willing to accept a lower rate. Other ones are you know push that more, and so you kind of saw that in in banking systems uh, in some in some periods of time. Whereas you know, lately we've had a more centralized rate setting mechanism, uh, which doesn't necessarily correlate with the actual you know what, what the cost of capital otherwise would be. Right. Okay. Uh, last question on inflation, because you mentioned there the producer rate uh, at around seven percent would hint to a maybe three or even four percent CPI inflation rate. What numbers are concerning? I know it's for different people. What what numbers would be starting to say? I don't know if it alarms you, Lynn, but makes you really kind of think, okay, there's a, there's a problem here. Um, uh, what numbers do you think concern the government, or do they not? I mean, is this, is this what we've talked about previously, where they want higher rates so uh, they can clear their debts? Um, what numbers perhaps should people listening be concerned about? Sorry, tricky one. Yeah, it depends on what assets you are focusing on. And so, you know, from what I'm looking at, the math shows that, you know, about 3% CPI this spring is kind of just the the entry fee, right? So that's that's like from base effects alone and, and kind of moderate inflation, you, we should touch around three percent. Now, if you were to get five percent, yeah, that that's that means there's like there's more than uh, people are expecting, um, and so there's there's numbers like that to watch out for. Now, from the government perspective, you know they, uh, yeah, they obviously different different central banks have different policies. Right now, for example, you know the the they generally are looking for more inflation, and and it's their it's their way of measuring. It. And so, for example, the Federal Reserve uses core PCE. Uh, which you know, kind of like the CPI basket, is not a, you know, it's not a fantastic gauge of inflation, but from their perspective, they want that to run hot. And so, they're, the Fed's long-term average average annual inflation target is two percent a year. Uh, the way they measure it, uh, it generally undershot that for most of the past decade, uh, and so now they want to overshoot it 
the, you know, a certain period of time so that they can have it so that it, you know, in hindsight, it averaged 2%. And that's, again, that's the way they measure it. And so the challenge for them is, you know, it, it looks really bad if, if, say, PCE is like 3% and there's a, we're, we're still going to hold interest rates at zero, right? Because that means if you're, if you're holding money in the bank, then based on the way they're measuring inflation, you're, you're losing 3% a year. Mm. And so there, and also like there, there's concerns of, well, if, okay, if inflation gets out of control, you know, is the, is the Fed going to let that, how hot are they going to let it run? And so they have a delicate balancing act of trying to, they're, they're, you're going to push the narrative that it's transitory. Uh, and uh, they're also going to push the narrative that they, you know, quote unquote, have tools uh, in, in case, um, you know, inflation gets out of control. Now, the problem is that their tools are also things that would crash a lot of these bubbles that we see. Mm. And that, so that's, that's, that's kind of goes back to how, you know, as we look later this year, we have to be kind of, you know, we have to be mindful about some of these central banks maybe trying to taper some of their, some of their activities uh, because they, they could start causing some, some fun activities in the market, you could say, uh, where, where, you know, the bulls and bears kind of wake up a little bit and things don't operate so smoothly. Uh, and so that, that's how I'm kind of watching that play out. And, and another factor is that, you know, when we look at inflation, is the idea of transient inflation, but that implies that prices go up and then come back down, right? So that, that's, what you, that's what you think of when you hear transient inflation. But what history usually shows is that inflation often comes in bursts. So the rate of change of inflation is transient, but then it, it, it inflates, but then it stays up to that level and it's like a new plateau. So for example, if you look in the 40s, you had three inflation spikes and they were, they were transient in terms of you know, what, what the annual inflation rate was. So it didn't keep accelerating, but it never came back down. It just, it just went up to that new level and stayed there. And of course, you can have individual things come back down. Like, you know, for example, I think lumber will not be at this level permanently. As an mm -hmm. example, there will be individual things that come back down. But for example, we're starting to see companies like Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble uh, raise prices. And I don't think you're ever going to see those, you know, they're not, they're not going to be like in 2022, like, oh, the pandemic's over. We're going to go ahead and, and reduce our prices. No, we, we've, we've permanently increased the amount of money in the system. Uh, and so a lot of these prices will be sticky, uh, even if they don't go up at the same rate every year. Well, and we're also seeing shrinkflation. A really good tweet the other day, an email newsletter from Marty Bent, where I, he shared something from a guy who was showing, I think it was just a, a packet of kitchen roll that had gone from 160 sheets down to 140 sheets, a very sneaky and easy way of getting away without increasing your rate. So you see much of that as well? Yeah, that one, there are analysts uh, pointing that out. And so I know Jason Burak has has pointed that out a lot, shrink, the idea of shrinkflation. Uh, and there are a bunch of analysts that follow that. That one, you know, the tricky thing about that is it's hard to measure. Uh, and mm. so in theory, the CPI baskets are supposed to adjust for that sort of thing. They're supposed to have a like by like, you know, kind of comparison. But in practice, you know, I, I don't trust that to actually be happening. Uh, and so I even posted a thing where, you know, the economist has the famous uh, Big Mac index where they just track the price of a Big Mac. Uh, and it's it's iconic. It's funny. Uh, but also it's, it's useful in the sense that it, it requires multiple commodity ingredients uh, plus labor and energy to make it. Uh, and so it's actually not a not a terrible, you know, inflation measure. At least at least kind of one of them. Uh, and so that has gone up faster than CPI. It's gone, you know, not not quite as fast as the broad money supply has gone up, but it's gone up faster than CPI. But then, of course, some of the questions from commenters is like, well, is the Big Mac the same as it was 30 years ago? You know, and so you know, probably not. Uh, and mm -hmm. so you know, if they if they if they trim around the margins, that there's less beef in it. 
you know, if there's if there's if they've added a couple processed ingredients, things like that. And so it is really hard to, you know, track a perfect, um, you know, kind of apples to apples comparison. And that's one of the reasons that one of the rawest commodity, uh, I mean, uh, uh, consumer price inflation measures is raw commodities because that, you know, copper is still the same as copper and oil is still mm-hmm. the same as oil and gold is still the same as gold. Uh, and so that's those input costs are important to watch. And that's one of those things where we have gone up a ton in the past year, but that we still, you know, the 2010s were a decade of consolidation in bear markets for commodities. And so the, the risk is that as we look out to 2020s, that this whole decade, uh, I, I think we could see another decade that looks more like the 2000s or the 70s or the 40s, we have a, a rise in general commodity prices. Wow. Okay. Uh, the next topic I wanted to cover uh, with you is uh, Biden. Uh, I know you've touched on his uh, tax proposals over the last month, but generally speaking, I mean, he's been off in office for a few months now. Uh, have you got a read on how he's doing? Have you got a read on uh, the economic policies from uh, from, from his... Um, don't know what you would call it in the US. I mean, we we call, we call it the you call it an administration, right? What's your read on the the performance of the administration so far? Are you getting indicators of policy direction? Well, overall, I mean, they seem to be trying to channel the the FDR concept of, of kind of uh, government going big on uh, you know aid uh, and uh, you know fiscal spending and things like that. And that's 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 obviously going to be a controversial thing because there's some people that are that are loving that, some people that are that are hating that, and you know, and so we've obviously the vaccine rollout in the United States has been one of the more successful ones. So as the United mm-hmm. Kingdom, uh, and so you know, they have that, uh, and that was also set in praise before. So they they continue to they accelerated it. Uh, that that's been you know one of the areas where the United States has been doing very well in terms of uh, you know the fiscal spending. The big controversy coming up is that. Uh, how we define infrastructure, uh, and so it's it's actually a pretty bipartisan issue in many countries, including the United States, that we need you, that we need some degree of infrastructure spending. That basically, the United States, for example, you know, most of our our interstate highway system was built in like the 50s and 60s, uh, and it's just it's you know, a lot of those bridges are still the same. It's just kind of like it needs a lot of work. Our roads are not very good. If you look at kind of third party measures of infrastructure quality around the world. The United States is is you know pretty weak in that regard, um, and so uh, overall there is infrastructure work to do to give you know uh, you know a lot of those uh, materials better, uh, replace lead pipes uh, that that you know uh, people drink out of, have faster internets, more widespread access to fast internet, things like that that can actually boost productivity. So you you put like a dollar in and you get like three dollars of economic activity out uh, because you're allowing people to work more. Just a, just a question on that. Is there also another incentive to invest in these infrastructure projects during tough, tougher economic times just to create employment, to create jobs? I know that's something the, the, that's happened quite regularly in the UK. And during recessionary periods, we tend to have seen our government invest in infrastructure projects. Yeah, the general idea there is that, you know, that tends, those recessions tend to be periods where you have a lot of people looking for work. Uh, sometimes you have lower prices. This time it's not really the case because of the you know the aid we've had. But in most recessions, you have lower prices because there's less demand for commodities. And so they come and say, well, if we're going to build a Hoover Dam, this is the time to do it. Uh, and so you get people to work. You you make you make use of the fact that there's kind of that extra capacity in the system. And that kind of goes back to that that classic economic idea of kind of trying to have a counter cyclical uh, spending policy to smooth things out. 
Now, the 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 kind of the controversy in this current uh, the, the current administration is how you define infrastructure. And so, in addition mm. to those obvious forms of infrastructure, there's also you know the, the, uh, things like childcare or 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 things that you know a lot of people don't have access to childcare, uh, and so that can actually impede their ability to work. And so, there's a desire to like put money into that uh, to basically expand childcare, make it more affordable for people. Uh, but that doesn't fall into the traditional uh, idea of infrastructure. And so, basically, the way the politics are working in the United States right now is that they're able to pass things. They have a tightly divided Senate. So there are 50 people in the caucus mm-hmm. with Republicans, 50 of the caucus with Democrats. And then the, and when that's the case, which is very rare, actually, historically, we have that perfect 50-50 split. The vice president is the tie-breaking vote. Uh, so that that's obviously the Democrat, uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, and so the, the thing there is that there are, you need every single Democratic vote in order to, to do that. So if even one is not on board, uh, that person has a lot of power. And so there are there have been, uh, especially one kind of centrist Democrat that has kind of put the brakes on some of these programs. Uh, and then there are a couple other that are also, you know, they're, they're, certainly if you were to get into things like raising long-term capital gains taxes from 20 to 40%, uh, there'd be a handful of Democrats uh, that, would, that would not support that. And so overall, you know, the big question later this year is, uh, and, and kind of all the way through the midterms, is, to what extent will they be able to pass an infrastructure bill? And so the Republicans are proposing, you know, kind of a, a more strictly infrastructure bill that's several hundred billion dollars. Uh, and then there's Biden's bigger plan, which it, which it, which broadens the definition of what infrastructure is. Uh, but that has some challenges getting through the Senate. Can we talk about some of these tax proposals as well? So the U.S. corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. Am I right? Uh, I, I read this in your report, but I haven't actually researched the number. Is, is this taking it back to before Donald Trump? Didn't Donald Trump reduce the corporation tax level? Am I, uh, so it, yeah, it brings it to the halfway point. And so the halfway headline point. tax, yeah, the headline tax rate was 35% uh, uh, under Trump. It went down to 21%. And so this would bring it up to 28%, which is the midway point uh, between those two numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. And did you see any? Sorry, I was just going to ask. Was there any when when Donald Trump uh, reduced the corporation tax? Is this uh, is this a what, what is defined a trickle down policy? Though, if they're paying lower tax rates, they've got more money to invest, more money to grow the economy. Like, was there any impact on that scene from Donald Trump reducing those rates? Uh, so that's that's the idea of that kind of policy. Uh, yeah. That that ideally they would invest more. Uh, one thing I read on my newsletter back then it was years ago. I was like, basically, most of that is going to go to share buybacks and, and dividends. I don't buy trickle we, down. Yeah, because we actually had we had previous examples where you know there's a say a like a under under uh, Bush for example, there was a tax holiday that let corporations big money back, and that flew into share purchases and dividends because you know in many cases corporations are already investing the amount that they think is appropriate. Uh, that you know, basically they, they have a reasonable confidence that they can build a new factory and that they will be able to have demand for that those products and services and mm-hmm. that they're not kind of you know not investing for lack of more capital and so when you, when when they have extra capital uh, they put it into dividends and share buybacks uh, which is very good for say me as a shareholder uh, and so you know Google for example just had an earnings report and they announced that they're going to do a fifty billion dollar uh, you know share buyback and that was great for the stock price uh, and so. That tends to not be an area that has a lot of, you know, economic impact. Um, at least long term, you get that kind of growth spurt for a year when everyone's excited, uh, but that's not super persistent. 
Uh, and it's one of the, it's one of those challenging things. Like in general, I'm I'm in favor of, of low corporate tax rates, uh, but that's not the same thing as as saying that if you lower it, we're going to get a ton of new jobs right now. Uh, I just think uh, you know a different uh, places have to be competitive to make sure that corporations want to be in their jurisdiction uh, and and you know kind of allow them to function. That's just how it works out. Where where some types of of tax cuts have bigger impacts than other ones. And so, for example, if you cut payroll taxes. You know, we've had this this thing over the past you know couple decades. Uh, part of the reason that the you know the big fang technology stocks have done so well is that they're not very labor intensive, except for Amazon. And so we have a general. If you look at a long term trend, corporate tax rates keep going down, right? So so it's not even just a headline number. The actual effective corporate tax rate after the headline number and various loopholes and deductions and things like that that keeps going down and down and down. Uh, whereas payroll taxes have gone up and up and up and then have gone sideways. Uh, and then also the cost that they have to pay for their employees' health care keeps getting more expensive. Uh, and so we have a general trend where it's actually, it's very costly for a, either a corporation or a small business to hire someone, right? Because we, we tax their, their you know, we have high payroll taxes on them and their, their cost of supplying health care is extremely high. Whereas on the other hand, the, the actual kind of bottom line uh, is taxed very lightly. And so, if you happen to be a, uh, not a labor-intensive business, like let's say you're you're Apple, all right, and so you know a rather small portion of your expenses go to labor, uh, then you know you, that's basically a very good situation for you. You can do very very well in that environment. Same thing for for say Netflix, right? So Netflix is most of this digital company. Uh, they have very few employees per per you know revenue that they get, uh, and so that benefits those types of companies. Uh, on the other hand, if you're a labor-intensive company. Uh, then you're actually your tax rate is kind of high, uh, and you know you, when you include those those payroll taxes and other sort of uh, of of kind of burdens, and so that's that's why it have been an environment that's actually been challenging to hire people or for people to keep a, a big percentage of their paycheck. Next up, I talked to Lynn more about inflation, but before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, we're going to kick off with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, with a hardware wallet, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I've personally been a Ledger customer since early 2017, and I'm still using the Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can also connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And next up, we have Gemini, who are my exchange sponsor, who I'm now using for buying and selling Bitcoin exclusively. And I've bought a shitload of Bitcoin with them, and they haven't sold anything, right? We're in a bull market. Who the hell is selling their Bitcoin? Come on, if you're selling your Bitcoin, okay, take a walk over to the mirror and have a word with yourself. We're in a bull market. Get your shit together. Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier to use interface for buying Bitcoin than the Gemini app. Also, as I've said before, a massive shout out to Cameron and Tyler, a total open book to me. I can approach them with anything about Bitcoin and they're listening, which is super cool. I am loving the Gemini product and I'm loving working with the Gemini team. If you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. And then next up, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services, offering a number of products for Bitcoiners. Now, with a BlockFi interest account, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin. And I have been a customer using their interest accounts for nearly two years now, letting my Bitcoin work for me. But also with BlockFi, you can get a Bitcoin back loan. You can borrow against your Bitcoin without selling. 
And if you register for the BlockFi credit card, which launches imminently, you will be able to get 1.5% rewards back on all card purchases in Bitcoin. Really fucking cool. If you're interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend that you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. So the next thing uh, is the long-term capital gains tax uh, rising to around 40%. Uh, I know this isn't particularly popular. You don't think it will pass through. But do you get some indication here about the direction that the, the administration's taking rather than whether this policy itself will get through? Or do you think there'll be a compromise? And what's really going on here? Because it's, it's this continual gradual um, uh, increase in taxes across the board. But are taxes really going to solve the economic problems that uh, the US government has right now? So in general, you know, that's that's a very big jump that they're proposing, which is mm. why I think it's it's unlikely. Because if you go back to that fifty fifty split, uh, you know there, there'd be a, a bunch of of uh, you know senators that do not support that large of an increase. My base case assumption would be that they'll probably get a, a small increase through. They might get you know a twenty five percent headline corporate tax rate. They might get uh, a bump up to to twenty five, maybe even thirty uh, percent long term capital gains taxes. I doubt they're going to get that forty percent number. Especially because when you factor on state taxes, uh, you know there are some states that'd be over fifty percent uh, for those, uh, and 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 those include some of the some of the blue the blue states, uh, and so it's going to be tricky to get some of their their senators on board or even some of their representatives on board uh, for that type of increase. Uh, and so the general trend we're seeing, uh, you know, with this administration is they want to uh, say tax the one percent at a higher rate, uh, and then they want to provide you know more more support for for you know uh, those other programs we talked about, like infrastructure or childcare uh, services, like that. And obviously, when you have that kind of dynamic, you're you're going to have that controversy between people of different political parties, uh, and, and kind of you know getting something like that through the Senate. So it's you know that's that's one of those challenging political things. Yeah, and it also feels like there's a, a very kind of interesting social, ex- you know, let's not say experiment, but there's this interesting kind of migrationary test going on in the US right now where people are realizing, hey, I can just move probably a bit more than they realized you know, pre-pandemic where most people were fixed due to where they were. We've had this move to people work, well, certain companies being able to offer home working a lot more, but also people just a little bit fed up at some of the uh, major cities. And we're seeing people moving to the likes of Florida and uh, Wyoming and uh, Texas. Are you seeing uh, an impact of this? Is this something you're measuring or looking at at all? There, yeah, there has been a migration uh, towards some of these more suburban uh, or some of these, uh, you know, sunnier or lower tax states. That, that's certainly been happening. Another thing that's the, the, the kind of opposite uh, anecdote to that, uh, you know, economists have generally been surprised because a lot, you know, in economic models, you kind of always assume like perfect rationality, like everyone's a robot and just kind of optimizes uh, what makes sense. And economists have always, like, there, there's been this trend where people move for jobs less than you'd think. Uh, okay. And so, you know, if if your local factory shuts down, you think, okay, people will move to where the jobs are, uh, but actually a, a pretty small percentage of them move. And that's because in in practice, it, it's kind of that network effect where, you know, you're, it, say you say you have a spouse, right? And, and so they still have a job and you say you lost your job or you, uh, you know, say you work mobily and you can go somewhere else. Well, unless both of you can move, that that's a challenge. Mm. And then, of course, if you have parents in the area, so say you have a kid and and the and the grandparents help take care of that kid sometimes, 
Uh, are you, you going to have them move too? Uh, same thing with friend networks. Uh, and so obviously over time, as we get more digitized, it's, it's easier to move. It's easier to keep in touch with people. It's easier to work from different locations. Uh, but it's not as easy as, you know, a lot of the people that are able to move are people that are, you know, that have the means to do so, that they have the, they, they, they basically have the money to move. They have the money to, that they have the option to work from home. Uh, they, they have that kind of more mobile choice, whereas a lot of people are, are actually, it's, it's sticky and it's actually challenging to move because it's like you, you can't get every, everybody kind of separate from their jobs at the same time, go find mm. new jobs, and it's actually a pretty big challenge. That's fair. Okay, I'm going to do a, bigger, a bit of a switch now because there's a, a whole another topic I want to ask you about. And this was somebody more asking me to ask you about this. But uh, we often hear that the gold market is uh, uh, manipulated by paper gold. Uh, and I've seen some commentary uh, regarding there isn't enough gold to support all the paper gold claims. I mean, I don't know about this myself. I'm sure it's something you've looked at. Um, I think something we would possibly therefore care about is uh, paper Bitcoin and claims to paper Bitcoin. And is there a chance that Bitcoin could be manipulated in the same way? Um, sorry, that's, I'm not sure if this is something you've looked at at all. Is it something we should be concerned about? I think it's something to watch. And so, yeah, basically okay. when, it relates to, when it relates to gold, the paper market is quite large relative to the physical market. Uh, and so one thing, for example, that you see during these big uh, price movements is that often, you know, like so let's say in March 2020, right? So we had a big sell-off across the board. Gold fell, uh, you know, the paper gold price fell. But if you actually were buying gold coins, they either stayed the same or got more expensive and were actually hard to find. Uh, and so if you want to get, if you wanted to get gold in your hand in a week, uh, that that price didn't go down. Whereas if you want to buy a gold ETF or buy gold futures, uh, where you you cannot redeem it, uh, and you know, or at least it's it's very challenging. They basically purposely make it hard to redeem it. So some ETFs you can't redeem it at all. Uh, futures you you can, uh, but they, it's kind of like the exception to the rule, right? So it's 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 like this long process to actually go through it and do it. Uh, and so uh, those paper markets are meant to make it more efficient, uh, but they also means that that more people can have exposure to gold or think they have exposure to gold than they actually do. So for, it's one of those things where. It's like musical chairs, where mm. if everybody demanded physical gold at the same time, there's not that there's not enough gold for that all to happen at the same time, and so that has expanded. You know, basically, you have that flexible supply to meet that perceived demand, and then most people are satisfied with th- that they think they hold gold. And it's one of those things where you know most decades that works, uh, but there have been periods in history where like a gold pool can fail uh, because you know everybody kind of demands it at the same time. Uh, now with Bitcoin. It's easier to settle, right? So you don't have the transportation costs, you don't have the auditing uncertainties of, of you know proving a bar is real, uh, and so because Bitcoin is has you know that technology that allows it to transmit more, there's less of a reason to have it to be so centralized, uh, and and there's less friction that kind of dissuades people from being able to you know do that approach, uh, and so you know as it relates now, the, the the paper market is a smaller percentage of Bitcoin's market capitalization. Uh, than is the case for gold, uh, and so that's that's something to monitor to kind of see that that continues to play out, or if if it becomes more and more paperized, for lack of a better word. Hmm. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin, and then I'll let you go. Um, I'm going to quote you here. Just took something from your report. Interestingly, Bitcoin both broke out and broke down since then, which was somewhat expected. Uh, you set two different uh, price ranges. Uh, uh, so I guess 
I guess because we're in a bull market, you, you, your expectation is that we would break out. But if we didn't break out, then perhaps support would fall. But we've been through both. My view is a little bit slightly different. Um, I've been watching these liquidation events uh, with interest because I follow one of the, the bot alerts that alerts you at the point where there's a liquidation event. At some points, my Twitter feed is completely overtaken by these alerts. Like, it's incredible uh, the amount of liquidations happening. And I'm just wondering, is there potentially too much leverage? Are there too many people trading with too much leverage and too much risk Too much risk in the system? And that's that's making it easy pickings for those who can move against them or counter-trade them. Yeah, and so yeah, going back to that that point about the breakout or breakdown, yeah, my basic, like basically we were, we were watching this kind of Bitcoin consolidation play out. And so if you start making lower lows, that's not good for kind of the technical signal. Uh, you obviously want to start making higher highs. And so there are certain kind of uh, points I was watching. And I was like, okay, if it, if it breaks below this level, that's a little bit concerning. If it breaks above this level, that's great. My base case is it would break out. And then the funny thing that happened was it broke out and then it then it broke and then it went below the range and then it so I was like you know this is actually a mixed signal here we have to keep watching this and so that one of the risks to watch out for is that you know during the 2013 that that kind of previous bull market the one you know two bull markets ago you had that kind of double double cycle anyone who looks at that long term mm-hmm. log chart you had a big blow off top then you had a really deep and long correction then you had another one. And so that you know the question of this cycle is is it going to look like 2017 where it kind of just keeps going up with you know 30% corrections uh, or is it going to have a a much weirder kind of pattern where it goes up and then it has like a you know 6 month or longer kind of big correction and you know just because you know we have investors that are that are price sensitive and kind of you know they don't want to have a big drawdown it's just kind of useful to watch that and see what's happening and obviously different different people have different um characteristics for how they want to trade it or huddle it. And so you can have like a strategic holding, but then also you want to focus on what the tactical price is likely to do over, say, a six to 12 month period. Uh, and so I, I just track that for readers to basically see how does this asset class compare to what other asset classes are? What are the risks? You know, how, how bullish are we with, say, a six month view uh, compared to the long term view? Uh, and so generally what we saw with this with this latest liquidation was was mostly good news in the sense that we cleared out some of the leverage, uh, and it bounced off of kind of those those areas we'd want to see it bounce, like where you know there's those metrics that determine like the SOPR, like the, the, that ratio, where it kind of the measures spent people are profit ratio. Yeah. do you want to explain what exactly. that is? Uh, it's that it's that measure that shows basically if that starts going below one, it means that that uh, a decent amount of people are now selling at a loss, so they're selling below their cost basis, and. Generally, if you look at Bitcoin's history, that only happens uh, in bear markets. Usually in bull markets, uh, when you go down and touch around one or slightly below one, that tends to be a bottom of a correction. Uh, and you start, you know, because very few people are willing to sell at a loss in a bull market. Uh, and so if that were to start breaking down, you're saying, okay, actually now we might be in one of those 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 bear markets where you're kind of, you know, not having that that very strong uptrend. Uh, but this latest correction did you know, kind of bounce off that that range once once that ratio got slightly below one, which was good to see. Uh, and so, you know, I, I I still remain bullish on Bitcoin in a tactical sense, uh, let alone that that longer term sense. Uh, but you know, there are certain levels to watch to make sure that that thesis kind of stays intact. And I think you know these these inflationary base effects and things like that over the over this next quarter are likely to be beneficial for the protocol and for prices in general. Uh, and but we I think as you get later this year. There are some challenges related to, you know, potentially broad sell-offs that could occur in asset classes, 
just because so many asset classes have been, been bid up to high levels, there's so much speculation and things like, you know, we, we saw the NFT craze, we saw the Dogecoin mm-hmm. craze. In traditional markets, you see, you know, just tons of securities that are trading at extremely high valuations. Uh, and so if we start to get some degree of tapering uh, or some degree of, of, let's say there's gridlock and there's there's no fiscal spending coming, and so suddenly some of the justifications for the market to just keep going up and up and up start to, you know, not be there anymore, uh, then you could get kind of a, a broad sell-off in asset classes, which could, you know, circle back and touch Bitcoin as well. This is why I think the uh, part sale of Bitcoin by Tesla is super interesting. Um, I think it triggered some Bitcoiners and thinking, I thought, Elon, you, I thought you were a hodler. You, you know, you're meant to hodl forever like the rest of us. Uh, and uh, also Elon claiming this was a test of liquidity, which I... <laughs> I know. Well, you you laugh at it, and I I part by it. And I was discussing this with Dan Held yesterday. Um, I've got a slightly different theory around it. In that, I don't think Elon Musk cares about Bitcoin the way Bit- some Bitcoiners do. I think he cares about money. He cares about the impact of a crappy dollar or inflation against his ability to run his business. I think I think that's an important point. And I, I can I I can see why he has the incentive to buy Bitcoin because of that. But I could also I also think his primary his primary concern is Tesla, SpaceX, you know, his various companies. And ultimately, that that whatever the value of the Bitcoin he bought is now, I mean, he bought 1.5 billion, say it went up to 3 billion, I don't know, whatever. But I can imagine he's just sat there like some, some docile hodler um, waiting for a, a 10-year thesis to play out to sell it. I, I think he's him and his team are very much probably analyzing, looking at previous cycles and saying, well, look, this Bitcoin we're holding you know, it could be flat now. It could go up to you know, hundred thousand. We should start planning to to exit part of our position because we need these funds to run our business. I don't think that is a. I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that he's looking at it purely as a trade, and how do they maximize this trade over a year versus him being a, a, a philosophical long term hodler. Yeah, I think you know. Yeah, I don't. I don't really buy the idea that it was like a a liquidity test. Because uh, you, te- you he tested yeah. liquidity when he bought it. Uh, yeah. That was kind of a big a big test. And you could do metrics to analyze what what liquidity should be. I think it goes back to you know it's actually hard to say because the funny thing was he only sold part of the position, mm-hmm. uh, and Bitcoin was only part of their cash balance to begin with. And so there's actually you can phrase it in such a way that it's a big position or a small position for them. And what I mean by that is you know the the, the funny kind of meme out there is that that Tesla made more money by buying Bitcoin once. Than they made in their entire history of of net income of selling cars because they they've mm-hmm. always been operating at a loss or you know very recently they're kind of in that break even mode where if you include the tax the the basically the, the credits they get for for renewables they're kind of at that break even point uh, and they're and they're starting to report an actual profit mainly from those credits uh, but it, they basically made more money uh, you know from Bitcoin from this whole business of selling cars for this whole time and so it's kind of a funny metric in that sense mm-hmm. uh, on the other hand. You know, they weren't like MicroStrategy, where they, you know, MicroStrategy put like their virtually their entire treasury into Bitcoin, uh, whereas Tesla only put a, a a fraction of their cash balance in anyway. Uh, and so I, I, I'm kind of surprised that they were willing to sell it so quickly because you'd think that you know that that Bitcoin is their hedge that they're just kind of gonna let it run. And I figured maybe if it goes up five x or something like that, they might be willing to sell it. Uh, but it's kind of funny that they that they trimmed it uh, after you know kind of a two x or whatever the number was. I don't even think it went up that far uh, since their buying period, but I could be wrong. Mm. I think it's somewhere in that that two x area. And so yeah, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, Elon claimed that he didn't sell his personal holdings, 
Uh, he claimed that Tesla was testing liquidity. Uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. We had another announcement of a company that added Bitcoin to their balance sheet as well. Yeah, that's um, like two percent though, right? Yeah, and I think that's that's going to be the norm. I mean, that's what Square did. You know, mm-hmm. the the number of companies that want to be like MicroStrategy, I think, are very few and far between. Uh, whereas, you know, a lot of those companies we talked about before, if CPI is is let's say even two percent, uh, and they're getting you know, near 0% on their cash or T-bills, which is where they hold their, their corporate treasuries, they basically have a melting ice cube. Uh, and then there's always the risk that inflation goes up to like 8% one year. And you know what I mean? Like, like basically there are tail risks to their, their big cash positions. Uh, and so if they put a, a small percentage into Bitcoin and that goes parabolic, uh, well, that, that kind of, you know, defends the rest of their cash position uh, and it, yet, if Bitcoin goes to zero, uh, then they, it doesn't really care because they put two percent in. Uh, and so that that's the risk reward that a lot of those corporations are kind of attracted to. Uh, and so uh, that that's I think that's what you're generally going to see for for corporate treasuries because most of which won't be hardcore philosophical hodlers like like Sailor. Yeah, I mean, I I think Sailor is. is... I think in uh, you know I I, always, I don't really like answering for somebody because really only he knows. But just just thinking it through, I think uh, originally it was an idea, and he's become uh, uh, quite a, a, a vocal supporter of Bitcoin now. And I think he's become more philosophically driven over time. But but he also there is a game theoretic incentive for him to promote Bitcoin as well. So I'm not always yeah. sh- sure with him. But I, I I mean I wonder if he's kind of like. I wonder how much time he's spending on Bitcoin versus MicroStrategy these days, and and, and you know, is there the incentive for him to work on MicroStrategy much anymore? You know, he's probably way more incentivized to work on Bitcoin and promote Bitcoin in some ways. So I don't know. It's, all right, it's all super interesting. Okay, final question: GBDC uh, premium is down to minus nineteen percent, which um, uh, seems a lot. And, Quite scary for for some people, and and some of those have been crit- critics of people who've been trading the uh, GBTC premium. But you're saying that makes it look attractive because uh, help me understand this, Lynn. So I'm pretty sure that uh, Grayscale holds the Bitcoin uh, in reserve that support the price. If there is a if it's such a negative, that seems like um, that seems like a good buy because you're. you're I know you don't own the Bitcoin as such, but you're you're essentially buying something that is not is being massively undervalued. Essentially, yeah, you're buying something you know eighty cents that it costs a dollar. Yeah. Uh, now, now, so but it depends on what your purpose is. So, for example, I I like I like self custodying Bitcoin. For example, it's one of the of pros of it. Uh, but for example, there are people. Say you have a Roth IRA, uh, you know that's an American like a, a mm-hmm. retirement account, for example. We have it at the brokerage. Uh, you know you can stick GBTC in your in your Roth IRA as a, as a percentage of your assets, and that gives you Bitcoin exposure uh, that's tax free. Uh, and you know so that so GBTC used to be a very unattractive vehicle for that because you you basically would be paying like a thirty percent premium over Bitcoin to have the privilege of having Bitcoin in your Roth IRA. Now you can buy it at a discount. And it's not the same thing as self-custodying Bitcoin because you do have counterparty risk. You have to mm-hmm. assume that there's not like some catastrophic uh, theft uh, of GBTC's uh, Bitcoin, uh, which is you know it's it's unlikely, but it's it's not out of the realm of possibility. On the other hand, you know for for people that have been you know investing in closed-end funds for a while, these discounts are not unusual, and you know people are kind of used to arbitraging them. 
Uh, and so that, that's, I'm kind of approaching it like that, where I look at that and say, you know, there are ways that, the, that you know, GBTC can do to, to eliminate that, that almost 20% discount. And it doesn't mean it can't go lower. I'd be surprised if it went below 20% for a, a long period of time. But, you know, we never really had this situation with Bitcoin before, so it's, you know, it's possible. My overall case is that you know, I think that's the market sending a signal that GBTC's fees are too high. Because, mm-hmm. you know, back when GBTC was like the only game in town, they could get away with charging pretty high fees uh, and having a premium and people would still, you know, uh, pay for that. But now that you have a bunch of new funds, uh, you have a Canadian ETF, you have mm-hmm. a bunch of other ways that, that people can access Bitcoin. In addition, I mean, the exchanges and and these other platforms like Swan and there's all there's basically the, the ease of buying Bitcoin has gotten better. And so the, the, the kind of selling point for GBTC to exist and to charge as much has gone down. And so if they were to reduce their fees as possible, that would, that would uh, you know, reduce the discount that, that people are paying. Uh, and then in addition, the, the long-term thing is that if they, if they do get permission at some point to convert to an ETF, uh, that would eliminate the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the discount. And so you'd have, you know, practically overnight, you'd have a, you know, if you go, you'd have like that big gain there. Uh, and so it's kind of an arbitrage on basically the probability of ETF conversion or a fee reduction. Uh, there's also things they can do, like uh, they could sell Bitcoin and then buy back GBTC shares. That's what some closed-end funds do. So they, they hold a basket of stocks, and for whatever reason, that whole basket of stocks is trading at a discount to NAV that's, that's pretty deep. They can sell some of their shares and then buy back units of their own company, and that's actually accretive to people that, that own it. Uh, and so there's this, there's kind of those wonkish things that they can do there uh, if the if the discount gets deeper and deeper to the point where it gets silly. And so it's it's just kind of something to watch uh, for people that care about kind of arbitrages over time. Awesome, brilliant, amazing update, Lynn. As ever, I always learn so much for you. Okay, cool. Well, listen, I'm going to let you go. I uh, I had something else to tell you. What was I going to tell you? Oh, you're not going to be in Miami, are you? That's right. Not this time, no. Not this time. Not this time. Well, look, hopefully we'll see you at some point uh, in the U.S. this year. Um, I've found a way to get in. So I'm going to be in the U.S. in a couple of weeks. Very excited about that. So Nice. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Well, listen, have a great month and I will see you. Uh, I'll see you in May. Yep. Sounds good. Bye. All right. How interesting was that one? Lynn has become one of my absolute favorite people to speak to. The knowledge she drops in these monthly episodes is ridiculous. I've learned more from her than almost anyone else. So, inflation. I think it's a really interesting topic, and we as Bitcoiners kind of have an incentive for higher levels of inflation as it just pushes more people to Bitcoin. But it isn't always great, right? We don't always want to see this. Yes, it affects people, it affects their real lives. And also, I think it's clearly a tricky thing to measure, I do think we are starting to see it in everyday life. Though. I mean, you can only have to go on Twitter and see the examples of shrinkflation that is happening or uh, inflation on certain uh, pricing of certain things. I mean, lumber's been the big one, but me and Lynn covered that. I know, for example, here in the UK, the housing market's going nuts. The price inflation there is kind of crazy. So this is definitely something I will be keeping tabs on and discussing with Lynn from time to time, but I hope you enjoyed this one. If you do want to get in touch, you can jump into our Telegram group or you can hit me up on my email, hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to everyone. Don't send me any weird shit. Honestly, you should see some of the weird stuff I get. Don't send me that. Outside of that, if you enjoy the show, I know you enjoy the show, but if you do enjoy the show and you listen every week and you've never left me a review on Apple Podcasts, please go and do it. Look, even if you think, look, put your show shit, go and leave me one star. I don't care. Well, actually, don't do that. 
maybe two. But if you love the show, if you listen every week, just head over to Apple Podcasts. It takes about two minutes and leave me a review. It really helps with the rankings. Outside of that, I'm going back to bed. It's weird. It's late. I'm so tired. I'm so jet-lagged. It's been really interesting getting to travel again. Hard work. I tell you what, going through the airports with this COVID shit is hard work. But anyway, it's good to be traveling again. Good to be back on the road. Okay, I will see you later in the week. Love you all. Speak to you soon.